Good evening, guys. How are we doing? Good. Well, let me add my warm welcome to you, um, along with Gareth, and especially if this is your first time with us at Trinity or you're just visiting. And as mentioned by Gareth, my name is Vicky, and I have the joy and privilege of being a part of the staff team here at Trinity. I know you were thinking a joy and privilege of being Gareth PA was how I was going to finish that, but that is also true. Um, And this evening, we are continuing with our summer sermon series called Stories to Tell, where we have been taking a look at some of the stories Jesus told, specifically at his parables. And a parable being a story Jesus told explaining a big truth, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And if you have your Bible, why not open it or turn it on or come and grab one from down here um, and turn to Matthew 7, which we'll be reading from shortly. But before that, I'm just going to tell you a story. So once upon a time, I fake tanned. I know. Great way to start a talk, but it was true. Uh, GCSE year was over, and our school was having a prom, a super American tradition, but it's basically a formal dinner and some dancing. And it became the event of the year. My school group continued to talk about it for months before it happened, from what to wear, who to ask to go, what to accessorize with, and even how to get there. And that was just the guys. And a couple of weeks before prom, I decided that I wanted to have a sun-kissed glow to my skin, to replace the pasty snowman color that was currently showing. However, given the time frame and the fact a holiday to Barbados would just make my skin go red, I was going to have to manufacture one of my own. So off I went to the shops, where I navigated shelf after shelf of tanning products. I ended up opting for the spray tan bottle, which was quoted the number one best seller. So I figured, what could go wrong? <laughs> Once back home, we read the instructions, and I exfoliated and moisturized, um, as was told to. And my mum, being the wonderful mother she is, offered to apply the tan to me. So she had the spray bottle in her hand, and she started to apply a very even first coat. Her hand was so steady that she could easily win a game of operation. So the coat was completed, and I stood there in that frozen position that you see sometimes for a few minutes, as instructed to do, to allow the natural air to dry the spray. At least 20 minutes had passed, Nothing looked different. So being the adventurous, slightly naive type when it came to tanning, we decided to apply a second coat, because that would, of course, make it browner. Still, nothing drastically happened when the second coat had applied. My my hopes and dreams of looking like I'd landed from three weeks of a holiday in Barbados was fleeting before my eyes. It was late in the evening, so we figured, let's head to bed and figure out a solution in the morning. So as I woke up the next morning, headed to the bathroom as usual to splash my face with some water, I glared into the mirror. To my shock and horror, my face had turned orange. (laughs) Umpa lumpa shades of orange. 
This, <laughs> yeah, no, this was by far not why, what I imagined was going to happen. We figured the best solution was to head into town and check out the shelf to see what we could find. As me, my mom, and my sister headed into town, we bumped into my netball coach at the time, whose face spoke a thousand words. My face really was orange. We didn't find a conclusive solution to the colour. I ended up heading to my prom a few days later, orange. The black dress I was wearing only highlighting the tone of the colour further. Safe to say that any photos of me on my prom have been disposed of. Oh no, it's not sad. <laughs> it turns out that patience is required when applying fake tan. The foundation process should not be rushed, and the instructions on the bottle to give time to allow the applied spray to settle and gradually tint the skin should be listened to. So in this evening's passage, we, are here, we hear of two builders creating a home for themselves, probably building a similar sort of house, around about in the same location, using similar materials. Externally, their homes could have looked identical. However, the fundamental difference between these two builders is what they choose to build their house on, what their foundations were made of. So this is what we read in Matthew 7, starting at verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, that is Jesus talking, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash." When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. So unusual for a parable, this passage actually starts off with the word therefore. That's a connective verb for us who've maybe studied English once upon a time, a connective phrase joining together of two or three clauses. Therefore is asking us to look at what has come before. And in the case of this passage, we have to jump back two chapters to get to the introduction of the section. The parable of the wise and foolish builder, which we have just read, is part of the final series of teachings by Jesus known as the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what we read in chapter 5 of Matthew. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Jesus has just removed himself from a large crowd who were following him after watching him perform miracles, healing the sick and the lame. He's gone up to the mountainside and it's Jesus' disciples, those who are dedicated to learn from his teaching that have come and sat with him. And during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is covering a huge amount of teaching from the Beatitudes, that's the blessed and the meek and the poor, to his teachers on law, to praying, to giving, to warnings about true and false prophets and disciples. 
And it's after this teaching that the parable we've just read falls. So Jesus is finishing his teaching with a firm reminder to be like the wise builder and to build a foundation on the rock. However, this story is not just for his disciples. It's not just for his architects, his carpenters, and the contractors. It is for you and for me. It is for us today. Building a house in this parable is simply an analogy for building a life. It is what are we choosing to build our life on? Bless you. From this passage, Jesus says we have two options. And this is what he says about the first builder. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. It seems like an obvious point. I don't need a builder or an architect to tell me that if I wanted to build a house, I would choose a rock to build it on because rock is a strong material. But I wonder if you've ever watched The World's Strongest Man. Uh, the final event of this competition where there are incredibly strong people competing. Uh, the final event in this is known as the Atlas Stones. The competitors have to lift five spherical stones weighing between 100 to 160 kilograms, which is the equivalent of a giant panda, onto five different leveled plinths. When the competition first started in 1977, it was rare for anyone to complete this event successfully. And if you've ever watched this event, you will see how much the competitors struggle to lift the stones, how slow and painful it all looks. You see, rock is heavy. It is difficult to move. To choose to build on rock is no light work. The wise man in the parable knew this, but he was not put off. He was willing to sacrifice getting calloused hands and blistered feet and potentially sore back to build his house on the rock. He knew it would require time, effort, and commitment. And Jesus is asking his disciples, like he is us today, that if we are wanting to build a life on the rock, on the strong foundations of life, then we must hear his words and act upon them. We have the choice. We can choose to build our house on the rock. Or, alternatively, we can choose to build on, live our life on a foundation of sand. And Jesus says this, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. There's something about us Brits and loving the beach. There is something incredibly appealing to us about walking barefoot in sand, putting our feet in freezing cold water, and eating an ice cream or fish and chips next to a majestic seagull. You get it. Who, I assume lots of people have been to the beach this summer. And we probably build a sandcastle whatever age we are. They're just great things. They provide hours of entertainment, particularly for children. You see, all you need to build a sandcastle is a plastic bucket and a spade. It is easy to build on sand. It requires little effort, and there's no need to dig down deep. There is something appealing about building a life on sand. 
it is easy to go along with what the majority of society may be doing, to accept the culture as the way it is. Our consumerist culture is constantly on the lookout for the next best thing. We find ourselves getting aggravated when the internet is slow. We get angry at being stuck in traffic jams. We love to queue, but dislike it when it's at a supermarket. Our culture holds so much credit and worth on careers, gaining money and relationships. And there is nothing wrong with these things. But if they become the foundation of our lives, when a storm hits, a business needs to lay people off, a relationship breaks down, you lose money. These things are not going to remain. And our sense of identity at times can appear to go missing along with it. The thing about building on sand, though, is that we say it is foolish. However, it doesn't always seem obvious. The man building his house on the sand did so with the same intention as the wise man, to build a house for himself, for his family. What decisions do we make that seem to be for the best intentions? In 1174, the Italian architect this name struggles, Bernardo Pisano, apologize there, guys, began work on what would become his most famous project, a separately standing bow tower next to the cathedral in the city of Pisa. The tower was to be eight stories and 185 feet tall. There was just one little problem. Builders quickly discovered that the soil was much softer than they had anticipated and the foundation was far too shallow to adequately hold the structure. And sure enough, before long, the whole structure began to tilt, and it continued to tilt, until finally architects and the builders realized there was nothing could be done to make the leaning tower of Pisa straight again. It took 176 years to build the tower of Pisa, and during that, Many things were done to try and compensate from the tilt. Foundation was shored up. The upper levers were even built at an angle to try to make the top of the, the tower look straight. Nothing worked. The tower has stood for over 800 years, but it leans 18 feet away from where it should be. One day, experts say it will fall, all because it, was, it wasn't built on the right foundation. But the leaning tower of Pisa has become famous because of its foolish foundations. In many ways, the builder on the sand did so many things right. He was evidently diligent, energetic, and a hard worker. It's not easy to put up a house, and especially not in those days where there were no power tools or a B&Q. He had to carry the stone and cut the wood and form bricks out of clay. It probably took him weeks, if not months, of labor. He didn't quit. He persevered until the structure was complete. Yet, in the end, all his hard work was for nothing. A life built on sand can look so appealing when things are going well. They are great. Externally, it can appear that you are living everyone's dream life. However, when a storm hits, Cracks start to appear, and the sand which was holding together so well during the good season 
is now not doing the job it was supposed to do. The sand that the builder had as his foundations fell in the storm. When he had most need for it and expected it would be a shelter for him, it did not live up to its purpose. It fell when the builder had no time to build a new one. This leaves us with the choice. Do we choose to build a life on the rock or do we choose to build a life on the sand? Jesus highlights the fact that both builders are going to face a storm. Someone once said, everybody is either going through a storm or will be going through a storm. Whether we choose to build on the rock or the sand, we are going to face storms in our life. This may be a loss of a job, a medical diagnosis, relationship struggles. I'm sure you can name many more too. From the outside, as we said, the wise and foolish houses probably looked very similar. The thing about foundations is that they are hidden. We assume they are fine until something goes wrong and we are tested. And in this parable, Jesus is making it clear that if we choose to build a life on the rock, to hear his words and put them into practice, we will be like the wise man. We can have a confident assurance when a storm comes, when we are built on the rock. We are able to stand firm, to get through. David in Psalm 23 declares this truth when he says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Noah lived out this truth when he was building an ark in the middle of a desert. He heard God and responded, knowing that a storm was to come. I currently feel like I'm going through a bit of a storm. My parents are heading back to Kenya where they live and I'm moving into a new house. Other people I care about have moved further away and as a family, we continue a journey of grief. It can all feel rather overwhelming. However, I have learned from past storms that I have the choice whether to stand firm and to hold onto the truths of Jesus or to look elsewhere and hope I will come out of a period of uncertainty safe. I am learning to choose that the joy of the Lord is my strength, that God and he alone is what I desire as the foundation for my life. And this leaves us all with the question, if we want to be able to stand firm, whatever the season of life, how can we then create a life built on the rock? I don't know about you, but I think following Jesus can sometimes seem daunting if we see it as a bunch of rules and regulations that are never going to be met. The disciples who are listening to Jesus' teaching at the time are hearing him speak of a whole new way of living compared to what they had heard from their previous teachers of the law. And they're about to head down from this mountainside, hearing these things, and Jesus saying to them, you've heard these things, now go and put them into action. It's scary. You may have just come back from a mountainside experience too. Maybe you've been at New Wine where you've heard incredible teaching, or you've been away on a summer vacation where you've been able to read incredible books. Yet you're coming back off the mountainside and feeling a bit fearful about the things that you've heard Jesus say to you. However, Jesus never intended us to go through a life of faith on our own. 
We cannot live out a life on the rock without the Holy Spirit. We need to ask the Holy Spirit for guidance when it comes to making wise choices. In John 14, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to his disciples, and he uses the word counselor, meaning a helper, an aid. And the Holy Spirit is this helper, this aid that lives in us, those of us who said yes to Jesus. And in Acts, what we see then is the disciples, after Jesus is gone, being filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And it is once that they have been filled with the Spirit that they then go out and teach and preach and heal the sick and the lame with the power and authority of Jesus. If we desire to put into practice the words of Jesus, we are going to need to be directed by the Holy Spirit. Have you ever noticed how many road signs are out on the roads? Um, my sister's learning to drive, and I went out with her the other day, and I, I was astounded at how many different road signs there are, from stop to there's horses to, like, there's a flood coming, all these sorts of things that you don't even think about once you've passed your driving test. <laughs> I mean, you should. <laughs> I'm a good driver, guys. <laughs> um, but the same is true when it comes to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be seen as roadside signs. He is there to direct, guide, and instruct us. However, like a driver, we need to be attentive to the Holy Spirit's promptings, his nudges. See, we are not removed from playing our part. The builders still had to be proactive in building their houses, and we need to do the same. In order to respond to the Holy Spirit, we have to grow in obedience, to respond to what and where we feel he is leading. A friend of mine was telling me how she prompted to give financially on a Sunday. However, she knew that in her purse, all she had was 10p. She felt a nudge to open her purse anyway, thinking, you know what, miraculously, God could have put a load of notes in there for her to give away. Um, that wasn't the case. However, she remained obedient. She gave away the 10p that she had, knowing that actually, over the next few months, financially, things may not be looking as solid and firm as that she was used to. But she gave anyway. And a few days later, a check came through the post for a portion of money that they weren't expecting. And that means she was able, and she is able to continue and live a life um, that she didn't think she would have the stability for. The thing about her is she was attentive to the Holy Spirit. She acted in obedience and lived by faith. And we are to do the same, no matter how big or small the act may appear. And I love the fact that in this passage, Jesus uses the word practice. He says, hear these words of mine and put them into practice. Jesus is not expecting us to be professionals at this. Practice is the activity of doing something again and again in order to get better at it. It is often said that practice makes perfect. But actually, practice leads to progress. I'm currently training for a few half marathons, and I've created a training plan that looks beautiful on paper. I do. Sharpies and all this stuff. I'm an administrator after all. However, if I don't follow the plan, if I don't go out for the runs, or put in the practice and the preparation, I know come race day, I'm going to be in a total mess. This is the same for us and our spiritual lives. If we don't put into practice the words of God, 
we are never going to grow, develop, and go deeper with him. But I think sometimes we can get caught out thinking because we are coming to church or we're a part of a life group or something looks good from the outside, then we are built on a rock. However, the message Bible of this parable makes it clear and is a real challenge. It says, but if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you are like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach. When a storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. We need to take Jesus' words on board, allow them to seep into our day-to-day lives. We cannot love our neighbor if we don't go around and introduce ourselves. We can't be transformed by the renewing of our minds if we continue to think about the things that we need to be transformed into. However, I don't know about you, it's off-putting doing some of these things because they take time and energy, and they can be things that challenge us and take us beyond our comfort zones. It's never, being challenged and being pushed out of our comfort zones is something that I don't think anyone really loves to do. However, um, I came across this diagram um, in my A-levels when we were looking about progressing an athlete's performance. Um, and I think this, this diagram is relevant to us today. You see, in the centre, you have your comfort zone. This is where we are doing the things that come naturally to us. However, in this zone, we can't make progress or build skills as it already contains the abilities we can do so easily. Next is the stretch zone. Not a physical stretch, although that may be helpful. This is where the most learning takes place. It is where we are out of our comfort zones, but don't feel totally overwhelmed. For example, I would put talking to someone about my faith or praying for someone on the streets in this zone. Finally, in the red zone is the panic zone. If you've ever become so anxious you can no longer think, you've probably run into the panic zone. Activities in the panic zone are so tough that we don't even know how to approach them. The overall feeling of the panic zone is that you are uncomfortable and possibly discouraged. Like the comfort zone, we can't make progress in the panic zone. The thing is, these three zones are constantly changing and forcing oneself to stay in the stretch zone is actually a hard task because as you operate in the stretch zone, you'll become more comfortable with the things that were once uh, in the stretch zone then go into the comfort zone. And the same things that were once a panic would then become into your stretch zone. And I think Jesus wants us to be in that stretch zone rather than the comfort zone or the panic zone. So for some of us, a stretch zone may be talking to others about our faith. For others, it may be praying for healing on the streets. And for others, it could be praying out loud is in that stretch zone. What is your stretch zone? Where do you feel the nudge of the Holy Spirit? As well as needing the divine voice though of the Holy Spirit to build a life on the rock, we also need each other. Do you have that back-to-school feeling about going to pray for someone? If so, why not ask someone you know who actually finds praying for people more comfortable than you do? Or you feel you are trying to talk to someone about their faith and that is just totally overwhelming. Why not just take a small step 
test the water. Maybe pop an alpha flyer on their desk. You don't even have to have a conversation then to start with. Jesus asks us to put his words into practice. We are seeking progress, not perfection. And this is the beauty of the church. We are a community that wants to see each other grow and flourish in our relationships with Jesus. Again, so if you are feeling daunted, why not be honest with someone in your life group? Or find a prayer buddy, someone who you can be accountable and honest with and who can root for each other as you both step out in faith. At the end of the passage we've just read, it says that the crowds were amazed at Jesus' teachings because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of their law. Jesus has authority, and at the end of Matthew, he tells his disciples in what is known as the Great Commission that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. Building a house on rock gives us authority, a power, a confident assurance. It is a rock, it is a place of refuge and strength. It is unshakable. Imagine if our foundations were so strong that we would have no fear in standing firm. Imagine if our foundations were so strong that we would not be anxious about what other people thought or where our next paycheck was coming from. Imagine if our foundations were so strong that when a storm came, we knew we were going to get through it because our foundations are unshakable. Imagine if our foundations were so strong that we would dare to believe that our families, this town, this country, this nation could be impacted. We don't know what either of the builders are thinking when the storm hits. However, I like to imagine that the wise man is feeling rather thankful when the storm comes, knowing his foundations are strong. With this assurance, I like to think that he is able to see the foolish man in trouble to welcome him into his house during the storm, to put on the kettle, to enjoy a cup of tea together and watch the waves come crashing against the home, knowing that they are both safe and secure. Are you building your life on strong foundations? Why don't we stand and we're going to give some time to just wait on the spirit. And what we're going to do to start with is just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. So you may want to put out your hands in a posture of receiving. I'm just going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. May your Holy Spirit come, Lord. And as we wait on the Holy Spirit, I wonder if you want to ask the Spirit 
What zone are you in? What is your comfort zone? And what is the nudging from him? And um, as I was preparing for this talk, um, I sensed that maybe there are a couple of areas that um, we may want to pray into. And one of them was that actually, there are times when we probably feel like we're built on sand and rock. And I wonder if there's some areas of your life that have a foundation of sand that you know is shaky and you want that to transform and be turned over to rock. And I think, too, there's others like the disciples who have come back from that mountaintop experience. And you know Jesus and the Holy Spirit is prompting you to, uh, to settle a new way, to go into new areas of work or family life or implement something new. But now you're back. The fear has come and the storms feel totally overwhelming. And I feel there's also probably others of us who actually right now, we're going through a storm and you just need a refreshing of the Holy Spirit to be reminded that he is that place of safety and refuge. So if you think any of these speak to you or actually if you just want some prayer, why not come forward now? And if you are here today as well and you are sick or unwell, then we would also love to pray for you. So why don't you also come forward now? And um, if you are also a, a visitor here for the first time, um, there's nothing special about this front ground. Um, we just do prayer this way just because it's more accessible. Um, it's easier at times to pray. So um, why not come forward? Spirit is here.